Sometimes I wonder what it would be like, what our culture would look like, what our country would look look like if, if all Christians in America, us included, never wasted any time. According to the Nielsen Media Ratings Company, the average American watches more than five hours of live television every day. The average American spends another 32 minutes a day on time-shifted television, an hour using the internet on a computer, and an hour and seven minutes on a smartphone. Now, I know you say, we're working, we're working. I'm not working. I am playing Frozen Bubble. (laughs) Many know that's true. And apparently getting older doesn't make us any wiser and how we use our time. The same report gives the weekly average of television watching per age category. 12 to 17-year-olds watch 20 hours and 41 minutes. 18 to 24-year-olds watch 22 hours, 27 minutes. 25 to 35-year-olds watch 37 hour, 27 hours and 36 minutes. 35 to 49-year-olds watch 33 hours and 40 minutes. 50 to 64-year-olds watch 43 hours and 56 minutes. And 65-plus watch 50 hours and 34 minutes of television every day. Please imagine. And that isn't even to consider the quality of what we watch. You know, our culture was once shaped by great works such as Dante's Divine Comedy. Today, it's shaped by Duck Dynasty. Today, this morning, we begin the season of Advent. And Advent simply means the arrival of someone, something, or some event of importance. And so during Advent, we look back in time to that moment when the most important person of all came, Christ came to earth, and that longing of his people who had waited so long was finally fulfilled. But Advent for you and for me this morning is also, and more importantly, a time of looking forward for the arrival of that most noticeable person, Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, who is coming to earth again. And so like the Jews of ancient times, we wait, and we wait, and we wait. What are we doing while we wait? If Nielsen is correct, the answer is not very encouraging, is it? Apparently, we are part of a group of people who are wasting much valuable time. What should we be doing? And how is the certainty of Advent, the return of Christ, shaping your life and your behavior? What are you and I going to do to make the most of the time that God has given to us while we wait? These are the questions that challenge us this morning and for which we seek answers as we come to the truth that Jesus speaks to us today because we must not waste our time. So if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to ask you to turn. Don't go into shock. Not Deuteronomy. Matthew chapter 24. Turn in the New Testament, the first gospel, the gospel of Matthew chapter 24. And when you found Matthew 24, I'm going to ask you to stand And we will hear, read together, the word of the living God.
Matthew 24, beginning in verse 36, this is Jesus speaking. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken, the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, once again, we thank you for your word. Always, Lord, cause us never to cease to be thankful that you are a God who speaks to us and this word you've preserved for us through thousands of years to teach us about who you are, to awe us by your glory, to teach us about who you want us to be. So once again, we call on you now, Spirit of God, to open eyes and hearts so we can see and understand your truth and how it is you want your truth to change us for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. May be seated. In order to have the fullest understanding of the verses we've read and the hope for the most transformation from this truth that Jesus speaks, we've got to put these verses in their proper context. It's chapter 24 of Matthew. Jesus spoke these words on a Tuesday. It was the very last Tuesday of his life. The following Thursday is going to be the Last Supper. Friday will be the crucifixion. And of course, Sunday his resurrection from the dead. So these are the very final hours of Jesus' life when he speaks these words, and here's what inspires Jesus to speak them. He was coming out of the temple on this Tuesday because Jesus had this wonderful connection with the house of God, with the temple. We find him there at the beginning of his life at eight days old. We find him there again as a 12-year-old boy in his father's house. And here in the last hours of life, Jesus is once again in the temple. It's where he wanted to be. We're not sure what Jesus was doing there. Perhaps he was praying. Perhaps he was meditating. Perhaps Jesus on this day was talking with his father in that beautiful, awe-inspiring place about what must happen on Friday. Matthew doesn't tell us what he's doing. But certainly... Inside that temple, Jesus was surrounded everywhere he looked by reminders of what was and what had been for many, many centuries. 
God himself had detailed every element of the temple. Its size, its scale, the materials that were to be used to build the temple, the furnishings that were to be put in it and what they were to be made of, all of it was God's plan. And for centuries, by the design and by the plan of God, the temple was the place where God met with his people. For centuries, by God's plan, the temple was the place where sacrifice had been made for the purification of the sins of his people and for the carrying away of those sins. And for centuries, the faithful had brought their gifts and with hearts of thanksgiving had presented them in the temple to God. So the temple, in its magnificence, And its magnitude was truly an awe-inspiring place. And Jesus must have had great affection for the temple and for all that had been accomplished through the temple ministry. But just as certainly, Jesus must have been refreshed in his resolve for what now must be. And so Jesus is leaving the temple for the very last time when his disciples come up to him. And though his disciples have also seen the temple for all of their lives, they continue to be awed by its splendor. So they come up to Jesus. And Matthew remembers that in that moment, the disciples pointed to the buildings. They called Jesus' attention to the temple buildings. Peter remembers that the disciples said, Look, teacher, what massive stones What magnificent buildings. So, Jesus makes the most of that moment. Jesus takes what is of interest to the disciples at that time. Jesus takes what's on their heart at the time, and he uses that moment to teach them truth about the temple. And so he tells them, Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, here's an aside. You ready? Here's an aside. You and I can learn from how masterful Jesus is at using the moment to communicate truth. See, Jesus didn't wake the disciples up from a nap. Hey, guys, wake up. The temple's going to be destroyed. Not one stone's going to be left on top of the other. Now, go back to sleep. Jesus didn't call Peter out of the boat to walk on the water. When Peter came to him, Jesus said, now that I have your attention, Peter, guess what? The temple's going to be destroyed. Not one stone's going to be left on top of the water. No. Jesus used that moment of faith to talk about faith. And Jesus didn't wait until he was surrounded by all the little children that came to him and said, oh, by the way, the temple is going to be destroyed. Not one stone is going to be left on top of the other. No. Jesus used that moment, surrounded by children, to talk about childlike faith. So Jesus entered into the moment where the disciples were, what was in their mind, what was on their hearts, and he spoke truth into it. Now, let's be honest. Can we be honest? You and I, evangelical Christians, we have a fondness for telling, for instructing, (coughs) for expounding the truth of God. We do. We like to correct We like to instruct. 
but our instruction doesn't always come from a place of listening or question asking or entering into the moment of another person. We forget that people are not repositories for us to deposit truth. People are just that. They are people. They have real-life worries and concerns and troubles. They have joys and sorrows, victories and defeats. And so since all of God's truth applies to all of life, we take those moments that people are experiencing. And into those moments, we deposit the truth of God's word. So really, this isn't an aside at all. It's vital for you and for me to realize as we wait, if we want to be effective while we wait, then we enter into the moments of other people. That takes time. You can't just rush by. It takes thought and it takes a lot of prayer. Lord, help me in this moment to apply your truth to this person's situation. And so that's what Jesus does. He takes the moment that the disciples provided as they looked at the temple and he, and he talks to them about the future. Do you see these things, Jesus says? I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And so whatever Jesus' feelings were about the temple, he knows that God is going to do a new thing, a different thing, a better thing, something completely unexpected. And so Jesus tells the disciples ahead of time, What's going to happen? This temple is going to be destroyed very soon. And justly so. The Jews had taken the house of God and turned it into a den of thieves. It's justly going to be destroyed. It's going to mercifully be destroyed. It's a mercy of God to destroy the temple so that no one will place any more hope that the way to God or that the way to salvation or that the forgiveness of sins can be accomplished in that place. No. And so God mercifully destroys the temple. Finally, it's mysteriously destroyed. You know, that's what the gospel is called. It's called a mystery. And so in some great, mysterious, spiritual decentralization, the gospel is going to be set free from time and place. But don't worry, the gospel is not going to be homeless. The gospel will find a home in the hearts of men and women, boys and girls. That's God's new way, his unexpected way, his New Testament way. And that day is coming. Matthew 25 also contains that famous and inspirational and motivational verse 14. Look there. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We love that verse. Then there's also verse 30. We love to sing about that and paint pictures about it. Jesus says the Son of Man will come on the clouds with the, uh, with the sound of the trumpet. Familiar, heartwarming verses for us. And so Jesus is taking them to a future time. It's very ironic because Jesus takes the disciples to the future in order to impact their present. Because the things that are certain to happen in the future are supposed to make a difference on the present. Look in verse 36. 
Jesus says, No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. Day by day, hour by hour, that is very present. You never know. Any day could be the day of Christ's return. And so you and I are supposed to orient our present days around a future certainty. The advent of Jesus, His most certain return. Now, in our present moment, Happy Holidays seems to have gained ground and won the day. You very rarely hear anyone saying, Merry Christmas, now Happy Holidays has won. In our present moment, manger scenes have been removed from public places that they graced for so many years. That's our present moment. But what's coming? What's coming? Victory for the gospel and Christ or defeat? Which one? Victory Victory is coming. Jesus intentionally doesn't want us to know when that victory will be. But he wants his disciples and us to know that in our not knowing when he's coming, we're in very good company. He says the angels don't know. He says he doesn't know. But let's be clear about this. Because we've got to get our theology straight. The word a few weeks ago, our theological word was what? Aseity. Oh, I love you guys. This morning, it's hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. We've talked about it many times. It simply means this, that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man in his nature. And those two natures are united in the hypostatic union. We also talk about the communication of natures. Sometimes Jesus functions out of his humanity and sometimes Jesus functions out of his divinity. Knowing his return, knowing the angels don't know his return, he's acting out of his divinity. But as the human son of God, Jesus, the great prophet of God, the information about the time of his return is not information that the Father has given him to make known to us. Jesus says, John chapter 12, he listens to his Father. And what his Father tells him to make known to us, he makes known to us. This is not part of that information. It isn't that Jesus and his divinity doesn't know it, but it's not part of the information that that God thinks we, his people, need to know. Something about not knowing is meant to change us. Something about not knowing is meant to inspire us. Something about not knowing is meant to motivate us. Think about Peter for just a minute. He was with Jesus when Jesus spoke these words. Thirty years have passed. And Peter's had 30 years to meditate and reflect on what Jesus said. And very soon Peter himself is going to be martyred. He's going to be crucified upside down. The letter he wrote, that from which we're going to read, he most likely wrote from prison. Persecution was a reality for Christians in Rome under Nero, awful emperor. But this is what Peter writes in 2 Peter chapter 3. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 861. 2 Peter chapter 3. This is the last chapter of the last letter that Peter wrote. 2 Peter 
chapter 3, beginning in verse 3, Peter says this. Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming, he promised. Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. Okay, they mocked and scoffed at Jesus too. Remember when he was hanging on the cross? Ah, if you're the son of God, save yourself. If he is God's son, come down from the cross. Let God save him. They mocked Jesus. They scoffed at him while he hung on the cross. But, (laughs) I love this part. The scoffing didn't prevent that day from turning into night while Jesus hung there, did it? That scoffing didn't prevent the earth from splitting open and the dead coming to life in the moment Jesus died on the cross, did it? Their scoffing didn't prevent that veil from being torn in the temple, no. Their scoffing didn't prevent the stone from rolling away to reveal a tomb left open, by a Savior who had risen from the dead and vacated the premises, their scoffing didn't impact that. So listen, don't worry about the scoffers. That's a good thing to say together. You ready? Don't worry about the scoffers, then or now, because they cannot alter God's plan. They cannot prevent God from carrying out His purposes. So Peter continues, verse 8. Do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. And then Peter writes this. And this is what I believe uh, the, the unknown uncertainty and anticipation does in us. Verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Take a minute and let that sink in. We ought to live holy lives as we look forward to Christ's return and speed its coming. The English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, they translate it, hasten the coming. The New Living Translation says, hurry it along. Can you imagine? You and I hurrying along the coming of the Lord. It is a mystery beyond me. How God's sovereignty and and human responsibility work together. I know that you and I do not alter the eternal plan of a sovereign, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God. We don't. God has set the day, the coming of the Lord, to coincide with the fulfillment of his purposes. And when the final person is saved, that God has ordained to be saved, when the last one's in, the end will come. 
How is that person going to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ? Because someone who heard Jesus say, you are the salt of the earth. While they wait, they are salting this world, their community, their home, where they work, with the truth of God's word. Because someone has heard Jesus say, you are the light of the world. And so while they wait, they are letting the light of Christ shine in them and through them. Because someone heard the Apostle Paul say, we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. And so those people are speaking words of reconciliation. Come back to God. You can come back to God. You can have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what they're doing while they wait. The question is, is that person you? Yes, no. Salting the earth, shining the light, speaking words of reconciliation. In some way, when you and I are living holy lives, waiting well, engaging in these kingdom-building activities to which God has called us, we are hastening the day when Jesus will return. Imagine that. Can you imagine that? We have a part to play in Christ's return. And so Jesus mentions Moses here in this passage. They scoffed then as well. They went on about their business every day as if nothing was ever going to change, and then the flood came. And so the day of the Lord will come. So Jesus calls us to Advent in verse 42. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know On that day, your Lord will come. Jesus calls us to Advent in verse 44. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come in an hour when you do not expect Him. Jesus calls us to Advent in verse 46. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. And so what do waiting people do? We watch, we prepare ourselves, and we serve faithfully. We watch We prepare ourselves and we serve faithfully. So activities in your life and activities in my life that take precedence over these activities or if they completely replace these activities in our lives, you and I, we are wasting our time. Time that God has entrusted to us. A kingdom is coming. God's kingdom is coming. Christ is returning to earth. You know, you and I, we think we're living in the, the, the denouement, the, the, the anticlimax of the story. Just the time of the wrap-up. All the exciting stuff we think has already happened. The star in Bethlehem. The chorus of angels that filled the sky with, with, with sound. To the shepherds as they went about their boring, monotonous lives. The miracles, water to wine, the feeding of the 5,000 with the two fish and the five loaves, all that is history. The raising the dead, bringing them back to life, that's the exciting stuff. And we think we are not part of that. Light turning into darkness in the middle of the day, the earth splitting open, the dead rising, Jesus coming back from the dead, that's the exciting stuff. It's all in the past. Wrong. (laughs) Exciting stuff is coming. The true climax of human history is coming. We are not part of the wrap-up. 
We're not. A great moment is coming. The sky will split. The trumpet will sound. Every eye shall behold Christ. And when he returns, he'll reign forever and ever. That's exciting stuff. Sin and death will forever and finally be defeated. That's exciting stuff. Souls will be rejoined to bodies made perfect. That's exciting stuff. And you and I, as much loved, intentionally adopted sons and daughters of God, brothers and sisters of Christ, we are going to live spellbound, entranced, mesmerized, dazzled, captivated, and completely awed in his kingdom and in his presence. All that's coming. Now, how can we say that's not exciting? But for now, we wait. And we must not waste the wait. See, a word of prophecy was spoken to the people in the Old Testament. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. A word of prophecy was spoken to the people in the Old Testament. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so they waited, and they waited, and they waited. You and I have had a word of prophecy spoken to us, even on this very day. Prophecy spoken to us by Jesus himself. He says he will return. So you and I are today what the people of the Old Testament were in their day. We are waiting people, Advent people. And we'll either wait with faith in the promises of God and allow those promises to have an impact on our lives, or we won't. Either we will waste the time given to us, we'll shelve this prophecy spoken to us by Jesus, we'll put it away somewhere and deal with it later, or we'll allow it to make a difference in how we live our lives right now. You and I, we've got to make the most of the time given to us by the Lord. Watching Preparing, serving, because we don't know when Christ will return and because we are eager to hasten his return. And so we watch and prepare and serve. If the Lord determined that the last person on earth to be saved would be saved because you are the one who spoke the gospel to that person, how long would the Lord have to wait? Really? How long would he have to wait? If the Lord was putting off his return until you got yourself prepared, how long would the Lord have to wait? If the Lord was putting off his return until you started to faithfully serve and do the things he's called you to do, how long would the Lord have to wait? You and I, we've got to make the most of, uh, uh, of this wait. You and I, we are not 
disenfranchised people. We feel that way, don't we? This time of year, shoving a corner, you Christians, shh, don't mention Jesus. But no culture and no government has the power to take away our light. It's the light of God in us. They can't take it away. No culture, no government can alter, replace, or silence the truth of God. God will and has in all times reserved for himself a remnant. Those people who are ambassadors who faithfully proclaim the gospel. May we be those people. May we be those people. People who make a difference in this place for Jesus' sake. Because we don't waste the time that Jesus has given to us. Jesus, our help and our hope, he is on the way. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you have to take what's true now and apply it to our hearts. That's your work, Spirit, the work given to you to point to Christ, to remind us of truth, to lead us into all truth. And we know without doubt that we are waiting people. We know that without doubt because you have promised that you will return, but we don't know when. And so I pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful people and that we would not waste the time that you have given to us. Lord, let us reflect on our lives even this afternoon how we spend our time. We are the first people to claim how busy we are. Oh, busy, busy, busy. I'm so busy, busy, busy. And yet we find hours to invest in just the activity of, of watching television. So Lord, help us even this day to take account of our lives, to see how we're spending our time that you give to us. Lord, show to us how we're preparing ourselves, how we're watching, how we're serving. Lord, I pray that you will show us the way of change if we're not watching or preparing or serving. Lord, may it be that you, may it be, Lord, that you come, that you come to earth sooner because we here at Redeemer are not wasting the time you've given us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.